not by a long shot, according to Sean Ernst, the founder of one of Australia's most successful email marketing companies. His clients include JB Hi-Fi, General Pants, Swiss Vitamins, and many, many more. In today's episode, we talk about something very specific that anyone who sends even one marketing email needs to know about. How to prevent your emails from landing in the spam filter. We also talk about the consequences of sending spam, how to improve your sender reputation, what the Privacy Act means for even the smallest of businesses, the top five email platforms to use, why open rates are not all they're cracked up to be, and much more. Hello, I'm Bernadette Schwert, and I'm the founder of the Australian School of Copywriting and the head copywriting tutor at the Australian Writers' Centre. Now, this fact I'm about to share with you will completely date me, but I worked on the launch campaign for when Optus arrived in Australia back in the 1990s. And as I look back over the last 20 years of marketing and advertising, what I've discovered is that while the tools of marketing might change and the way in which we communicate with the customer may change, the principles of marketing don't. And copywriting is the same. And so what I love about teaching copywriting is that once you've learned the principles of copywriting, you can write copy for any product, any service, any company. Now, that sounds quite fanciful, but it's true. So if you'd like to learn the principles of how to write copy, and in particular, how to write copy for emails, you may want to enroll in one of our copywriting courses. You can check it out at writercenter.com.au forward slash essentials. Now, let's get started. Sean Ernst, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Now, Sean, you are an email marketing expert, and there's not much you don't know about email marketing. Um, just tell us a little bit about what you say when people ask you, is email dead? Because I hear that a little bit. Mm. And I'm just curious because people say social media is taking over. You mm. might even need a website. What are your mm. thoughts when people say that? Yeah, I guess from my perspective, or I think from customers' perspective, I think that customers will always need the role that email plays. And in some respects, um, some specific roles of email are being replaced, like we use instant messenger for some types of communication. But I think the ability of customers to choose to have an inbox where they can opt into receiving news from brands without any moderating algorithm, um, I can't see customers giving that up anytime soon. Um, on the brand side, um, it's not really a matter of opinion. The data is really clear on this, I think. Email is still a strong um, a driver of revenue and unique in its ability for you as a brand to own a direct relationship with your customers. Um, and like as an example of like one of these, yeah, email is dead type of um, hysteria that was happening a few years ago, there was a lot of talk about Facebook Messenger bots. Um, Facebook opened up the API um, and less than 12 months later, Facebook was charging brands to reach customers who had already explicitly asked to hear from brands. Um, so there's always a risk with any proprietary platform that you don't control the relationship with your customers. Um, so I feel like this is kind of a unique role email plays. Um, there's nothing in the way of reaching customers and nothing in the way of customers hearing from brands, um, except for spam filters, of course, which I'm sure we'll get into. Exactly. Yeah. And so do you think social media is replacing it? And of course, you've kind of answered that in your own way by mm. saying that you don't own the customer, do you? When you yeah, have a customer right. via social media. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, also to sign up for social media, you still have to have an email address, even they acknowledge that you have to, that email's still got a role in there as well. But I don't, I don't really see um, social media and email playing similar roles in the customer's relationship with brands. I think of like, like, for example, like Google, I mean, no, it's not social media or email, but I think of this sort of framework of Google being a search engine. Customer knows what they want to find. And so then they find it on Google. Um, social media, I think of if, if Google's a search engine, social media is like a discovery engine. Um, so they don't necessarily know what they want, but they will discover new things on social media through the feed. Um, and then email is is sort of separate to that as, as well, which is it's a way for customers to opt in to hear from brands directly um, that, that won't be, yeah, like I said, filtered by an algorithm. So I don't see them as working against each other at all. Um, you don't get the most out of email without social media for customers to discover you, but you also don't get the most out of social media without also having email as the direct relationship um, with your customers. You'll leave money on the table if you don't complement your social media with email as well. 
That's a really nice way of saying it. And we've all heard the stories, and I know they're rare, but they do happen where someone's you know, Instagram account gets just deleted overnight mm. and all the years of building up that that account is just gone, whereas, you know, that's not going to happen with email unless mm. you abuse the spam filters, which is what yes. we're all here today to speak about. Yeah, so sure. um, before we do that, though, Sean, I just want to hear a bit about the clients you work with because they're quite mm. substantial and, and uh, you know, some big data going on with the clients that you work with. Just tell us a bit about the, the clients you work with and the case studies that you um, have got some. Yeah, sure. So at Email Experts, we just work with um, e-commerce brands so and product-focused e-commerce brands. So, um, you know, some of them are some of Australia's sort of most trusted brands like Swiss and Tecuba and JB Hi-Fi, General Pants, um, as well as some of Australia's fastest growing brands like Rolly Nation, um, Francesca Jewelry, Erstwilder. You'll hear more about these brands over coming years because they're growing so fast. Um, and so for those brands and especially consumer-focused e-commerce brands, email is incredibly important. Generally, um, brands and our, our clients um, fall into this category that that they drive, you know, 20 to 40%, sometimes even more of their revenue is uh, is coming from the email channel. Amazing. Let's talk about spam because mm. I think it causes a lot of angst with good reason and also there's mm. a lot of confusion about it and a lot of ambiguity as to what people believe they can and can't do. So firstly, let's just cover the basics on what is spam. Mm. Yeah, I think there's kind of two levels of spam, like strictly speaking, like spam is an email or message that a customer receives that they didn't give permission to receive. So like, you know, in some definitions, that means that, you know, it doesn't matter how frequently brands send, that wouldn't strictly be spam. Um, but sometimes I feel like even if a customer has given permission, brands can get to the spam zone by like bombarding customers um, with emails that they didn't necessarily um, expect to be receiving in that volume or frequency. Um, and so, yeah, so there's kind of a few different ways of looking at it. Um, and from the purely technical perspective, spam is email that ends up in the spam filter. Um, but that kind of sits outside of this framework as well, because you could have permission and just be doing things wrong through, you know, uh, not necessarily any deliberate um, or like malicious actions on your own, just um, accidentally doing some things wrong and ending up in the spam filter, even if customers would probably expect to be receiving emails from you. So who makes the laws as to what is spam and what isn't? Who oversees mm. all this? Yeah, it's a little bit of a hodgepodge, really. Um, so in, being in Australia, um, there are three main regulators that, that we pay attention to. So there's the, or regulations, there's the Australian Spam Act. Um, and so that specifically looks into what consent means in Australia, especially explicit and implied consent. Um, and so the Australian Spam Act is the one that most people should be mostly paying attention to. Um, and you just Google, I think it's Australian Spam Act 2003. Um, but there's two other regulators that we keep an eye on as well. So one is um, the GDPR, which is General Data Protection Regulation, which is the European regulation. Um, you know, it, it, it seems like, oh, we don't have to care about it, it's in Europe, but actually it applies to anybody who sends to Europeans. It's not just senders from within Europe. But, you know, if you've got Europeans on your list, which you probably do, then it applies to you. Um, that's They're particularly concerned with how um, data is handled, how email addresses and personal data is handled and deleted and that sort of thing. Um, the so-called right to be forgotten is a European GDPR regulation. So, um, and then the third one, which is a relatively recent one, is the Californian Consumer Privacy Act. And again, the reason why we pay attention to that is because like Europe, it applies to anybody sending to you Californians, not just people sending within California. Um, and But if you're fortunately, um, for most things, if you're compliant with Australia, then you're compliant with the other two as well. So for most marketers, you know, um, that, that I'm talking to, if they're paying attention to the Australian Spam Act, they're usually compliant. So that begs the question, Sean, mm. you've got a whole bunch of big businesses that you deal with and they're probably mm. across it because they're working with people like you and that's your job to keep them on the straight and narrow. But what about the smaller businesses who've maybe got, you know, 5,000, 10,000 names or even 300 names on their list mm. and can't possibly, well, in some respects, be expected to understand this? Uh, are they mm. expected to understand the Spam Act? Well, I think that the main thing that they need to be aware of on the Spam Act, and there's some good resources online when you look up the Spam Act, I think it's ACMA, there's one um, website that, that sort of lays it out in quite clear, plain English. Um, they should be clear on what um, explicit and implied consent is. So that's whether you're allowed to email an email address that you just find on a website, for example, what, you know, how that's handled. 
um, as far as regulations go. And we'll go into it in a bit more depth, I'm sure. But like, um, you know, it does it does matter whether you're you've got a B two B relationship, a personal relationship with somebody, versus whether you're putting them onto a mailing list where they're going to be receiving, you know, four or five emails a month from a brand. Um, and so for for the small brands, like if you are following, like you can sort of just like look up, you know, a one or two pager on the Australian Spam Act. You should really be across what implied and um, explicit consent is, and then you should be pretty good, I think. Do you think that the regulators treat the big players like the Coles or the, the JB Hi-Fi's differently to the small businesses? Can small businesses, and I, I mean this euphemistically, like get away with more than mm. what the big companies can do or can they sort of slip under the radar because they think, well, I'm just a little guy, I didn't really understand mm. the rules. Have you seen that happen? Well, I mean, it's kind of oddly, like on the definitely on the legal side, and I mean, we'll get into it in a, a bit later, I'm sure. But um, on the legal side, the little players probably could feign ignorance a little bit um, and and get attract less regulation, um, attract less enforcement. And so all of the enforcement that we've seen, there's been fairly little of it, um, but it's definitely been on the bigger brands who have, um, you know, let's say more egregious, um, you know, failing to allow customers to unsubscribe easily, for example, is something that's been enforced quite heavily. Um, but the small businesses should still be aware of the other components, which is what customers expect, respecting customers' expectations, as well as the technical components, which aren't strictly legal, like requirements, like this, the, there's algorithms that are determining whether any email goes into the spam filter, for example, you know, that inboxes like Gmail and Hotmail and Yahoo and Outlook uh, are looking at whether an email goes into the spam filter. They're not really looking at the legal regulations, um, but those um, more technical and customer expectation um, side of things, those things should definitely, you know, small small brands and big brands alike should be very conscious of that. Because what you're saying there is it's about the reputation. It's not so much about where you get fined or not. It's what does a customer really think of you at the end of the day, which is what this is all about. Exactly, yeah. It's not just about am I legally allowed to do this? It's also <laughs> do, do people want me to do this? Like do customers, yeah. are they going to be annoyed at me as a brand or think, yeah, it's about your reputation, exactly. Yeah. And and this is, a, I guess, a how long's a piece of string question, but within an organisation, who do you believe is the best person to be responsible for this kind of overseeing of, of regulations and, and uh, compliance? Mm. I mean, it depends on the on the level on the size of the organisation. You know, if you're in a large organisation, um, like some of our bigger brands, they might have a, a CRM manager, and so they're whoever's sort of dealing with sensitive customer data, which is increasingly becoming a role within big, big organizations is the data security officer or something like that, is that they should be mindful of, um, of how customers' data is being handled and collected. Um, and, and yeah, how unsubscribes are being, you know, collected, how frequently customers are receiving emails. Um, and if you're smaller than as with anything, you know, those roles sort of get combined with other roles. So, uh, uh, you know, email marketer, if you're in a team of, five in your marketing team, then, then yeah, one person's just going to sort of be responsible for a few things, including how customer data is handled. Mm. Let's talk about some of the consequences of sending spam inadvertently mm. and consciously. Mm. Uh, let's we'll talk about legal, financial, reputational, but just from a financial point of view, what kind of big fines have you seen imposed on businesses who've transgressed? Mm. Um like I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but there's definitely been a few in the hundreds of thousands. Um, I know, yeah, so there's some some well-known brands within Australia. Um, both Woolworths and Kogan have gotten in trouble in the last um, you know couple of years um, about how, uh, particularly around how they handle the unsubscribes. Um, sorry, what was the question again? Bennett? Yeah, just about what kind of implications and consequences mm. can brands be expected to, to face. Mm. Um, and just just on the Kogan and the Woolies one, you talked about the unsubscribes. Mm. What did they specifically do that made it difficult to unsubscribe? Mm. Um, I th look, I don't, I definitely don't want to uh, <laughs> get it get it wrong here. But the 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 from my understanding of it is that um, is that they made it like that that you've got to make the unsubscribe quite a straightforward process. And so um, for one of the brands, they were making it that you had to. Um, create an account to unsubscribe. Um, so if you clicked on unsubscribe and you weren't signed in, then it might be extra steps to unsubscribe. And so really, if a customer is trying to unsubscribe, um, then, you know, 
you, sh- you shouldn't do that and you can get in legal trouble for that. But also from a technical side of things, if it's too hard for a customer to unsubscribe, they're more likely to report you as spam and then you're in real trouble from a technical side of things. So it's like, again, like not just the legal side of things that we're worried about, it's also customer expectations and t- technical side of things. And then one of the others was, uh, was about um, uh, uh, customers who might have been using the same email address for like a couple, for example, you know, Peter and Margaret, they're both using, you know, Peter at bigpond.com or whatever, and they're both using the same email address, and they would unsubscribe from from one of them, but uh, they were leaving it on uh, leaving the email address on on the list. And it's actually really important that the um, the unsubscribe is treated at the email level, not at the individual customer level. Got it. So that's the trouble that they got into. But like I said, it's not just about being legally compliant. It's also reputational. Or if you, as a marketer, if the brand gets in trouble, then, you know, that's going to reflect pretty poorly on you if you're in charge of that. Um, so even if it's not necessarily legal trouble, but you get lots of complaints from customers, you know, you want to make sure that you're sort of respecting your customers and mm. um, following their expectations there. So let's talk about spam filters. Mm. What are they and how do they work? Mm. Yeah, so that's on the on the technical side. And if I can take like just sort of a step sort of up again is that like I kind of think of spam on, on three levels, as I've already touched on a bit, is the customer expectations. Do the customers feel like they're given permission to receive the kind of messages you're sending? Do they feel like you're respecting their autonomy? Um, then there's the technical side, which is the spam filter. So spam folder in your inbox. This is driven by an algorithm. So we, as a marketer, we don't know exactly what these factors are, but it's got kind of think of it like SEO. So email marketing professionals like myself try to reverse engineer and figure out what those factors are. Um, but ultimately those algorithms are trying to judge what the customer expectations are. So um, if you're trying to, they're trying to match the algorithms to match what customers want. So if you're thinking about what customers want, um, then you should be fine with the technical side as well. Um, and then the legal is what we touched on at the start, which is are you compliant with the law? So it's important to be compliant at the moment in, you know, when we're recording this, which is early 2022, enforcement is fairly minimal, especially for smaller brands, but it's an area of increasing regulation. Um, but like I said, there's also the customer expectation and technical side. So even if you're legally compliant, it's also about respecting customers' permission. Um, and then on your question of, of the technical side of things, um, this kind of a few aspects of that are kind of boiled down to two. So one is um, like the content of the email itself. So this is like the subject line. Um, if you've got an, a subject line that has like all caps, um, has percentage off, um, even ellipses in a subject line or lots of exclamation points, these type of things can be spam flags that make mean your emails more likely to go into the spam filter. Um, and then within the content of the email itself as well, so if you've got typos, um, that's that's obviously bad. If your email is all images um, and has no text in it, then that's more likely to go into the spam filter. Um, if you address customers by their name, it's less likely to go into the spam filter. Um, and you'll notice I'm talking about like less or more likely, like brands kind of have a similar, again, to SEO, they've kind of got a reputation that they have. And if you've got a really good reputation of over a long period of time of sending really good emails, then they'll be a little bit more forgiving. You know, if you do have one email that's like 50% off sale on now, if you've got a good reputation over months and years, then you're unlikely to go into the spam filter. But if you do that all the time, then over time, you're more and more likely for your emails in the future to go into the spam filter. Um, So that's one side of the spam filter. It's looking at content flags, like what in the content of that individual email um, is more likely to be spam or not that the algorithm can pick up. And then the other side of the algorithm, which often gets content flags get a lot of attention, but more importantly is engagement. Are your customers engaging with your emails? If they have a long history of not opening your emails or not clicking on your emails, then inbox algorithms um, sort of frown upon that as well. So if you've got, let's say, 2 million customers on your database, but a million of them haven't opened an email in a year, um, then you're more likely to go into the spam filter as well. So it's important not just to make sure the content of each individual email looks good, but that you're, you know, filtering for engaged customers. Um, just on that, Sean, are you saying that if you've got people on your list that haven't opened it, then emails to other people will be affected? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so it's not. It's a really good point there. It's not just about those individual unengaged customers being, you know, you as a brand having. Um, you know, difficulty reaching those customers. Um, it also affects your sender reputation overall, which will affect your ability to reach even potentially engaged customers or customers who are going to respond positively. 
I mean, we've seen that with brands before in experiments that we've done, um, that if they send to their full database, um, they can actually reach fewer people because having those disengaged customers on the list affects their ability to reach even those moderately engaged customers. Whereas if they take off those disengaged customers, then they actually reach more people. And so it's often tempting with your big, you know, Black Friday sale or whatever um, big, you know, promotion that you want to push to send to more people, but actually that can work against you and sending to, you know, you're engaged and maybe break up your list into three groups. You're most engaged, those who've opened in the last three months, sorry, in the last month or yeah, month or three, you're moderately engaged that are those who've opened maybe in the last, you know, two to you know, eight months or something like that. And then you're disengaged and that disengaged group, just forget about them because um, yeah, if you continue to center those, then you might miss out on reaching, especially that moderately engaged group. I think probably marketers are, are worried that they, if they invite people to unsubscribe mm. or just you know, create a disengaged group and don't send to them, they're thinking they're, lo- they're losing opportunities to actually mm. get those people re-engaged. But what you're saying is, no, they're, they're going to drag you down. They're an anchor. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those vanity metrics, I think. A lot of the time we focus really a lot on, on list size, but it's it's really about how many eyeballs are engaging with our brand this month, this, you know, this reporting period. And so, you know, if you, it doesn't really matter if you've got a million people on your list, if you've got an open rate of, you know, 10%, it's much better to have half of that and, you know, a 25% open rate, for example. So it's about engaging with as many people as possible, not uh, like ultimately the open rate and the list size are vanity metrics that sort of indicate so towards what you really want, which is eyeballs opening your emails, people clicking through, people purchasing your products. So just on that, I mean, there's so much to unpack right there, sure, but the open <laughs> rates, I know that we've, we've talked offline before, but the open rates is not always the, the magic number that it, people mm. think it is, right? Can you talk us through what you mean by that? Yeah, so I mean, there's a couple of um, of aspects of open rates that have that that I guess we need to unpack there. So, um, firstly, like open is only recorded when images load. So, from a you know technical com- computer side of things, um, like we don't really know when people open emails unless they open images. And so, if a customer doesn't open images by default, um, a lot of Outlook customers don't like people who use the Outlook app don't load up images by default um, or if even some Gmail customers don't open images by default. So opens are often going to be underreported because of that. Um, and then um, uh, then also uh, just a few months ago when Apple released iOS 15, they really affected the way that opens um, work and in, in that kind of works the opposite way in that it overreports the open rates. So the open rates um, aren't um, the be all and end all, and they're not like the best way to measure engagement. Um, you know, they're kind of one of the best we've got. It's okay to compare like open rates like this week versus last week because algorithm changes aren't that different, but, uh, you know, don't put too much weight just in that one metric. It's also about the click rate and um, how many people are engaging on the website. So just on the question of images, and I, I'm mm. sort of taking a sideways step here, but I know I get asked this all the time. Mm. Um, people say, should we send a text email or mm. an HTML with images email, you know, and for maybe even just describe what the differences are for people listening so they understand the differences. Yeah. I mean, I know you've got a lot of listeners across many different industries. And so I think it's important uh, for me to sort of stress that I'm dealing with e-commerce um, and, and retail brands um, who are trying to sell specifically products online. And the reason why that's important, I think, is that, you know, for e-commerce, like in marketing and e-commerce uh, brands online, so often there's a, like like photos are super important. It helps close that gap between you not being able to touch and hold that product. And so it's in, built into the DNA of e-commerce to be so focused and, and, and uh, it's very important to have that um you know the visual element and the photographs and stuff like that um and then so as far as like uh so, so for, for our clients the the b2c e-commerce ones photography is so important that we just have to have it it's a non-negotiable images are really important for those and um and for most customers they want to see that as well um but for you know from time to time there is a role for text-based emails and text-based emails um oh, and for, for the definition there an a designed or image heavy email is, um, you know, it's the one where you've got like a header 
like a header with a logo and maybe a nav menu. And then you tend to have like a main hero image. You might have a little bit of text and a call to action button and then more images. Um, so if you think of a jewelry company, they're likely to have, you know, model photography and stuff like that. Um, a text-based email is more like the ones that you would send to your friends and colleagues, which is just a text email. It looks a bit more um, text-based. It might address you by your name um, and just have uh, text links as opposed to, you know, a designed um, button element sort of looks less like a website and more like a letter to somebody. Um, and those can be very powerful. Um, they, they can cut through, they can land in the um, primary inbox, which was something I'm sure we can talk about another day. Um, but in Gmail, you've got multiple tabs um, for primary and updates and social. Anyone who uses Gmail will know what I'm talking about here. And a text-based email is more likely to go into the primary tab, um, which so the main reason why I would recommend brands do that is for specific purposes. You know, if you've got um, a, a big, uh, you know, anniversary um, event and you've got a letter from the founder that you want to send out to your customers, that can work really well and be received really well from customers that way. Um, but of course, when it's text-based, also be ready for customers to reply. So <laughs> you might, you know, when it looks like a text email, make sure that your customer service is ready for the uh, for the replies from customers in that way. So in terms of, people who are starting out or even experienced marketers but not email uh, savvy in terms mm. of some of the errors that they can make about uh, getting it wrong when it comes to getting caught in the spam filter. What are some of the, the tips you can give people to increase the likelihood of those emails not going to spam? Mm. So so the first one is, is making sure that you've got permission from those customers to receive um, emails. And that might seem um, obvious, but some platforms it can be a little bit too easy to collect email addresses, um, like for example, all of your transactional email uh, transactions might have an email address attached to that. If you didn't get permission from that customer, um, then you shouldn't be sending to them. Um, and so, so that's the first thing. Um, the second one is um, address customers by their name. If you've got their name, then most um, email software will allow you to use a merge tag, which is just a piece of code that you put in there and make sure that it addresses you, you know, hi, Sean, hi, Bernadette, that that's in that start of the email that helps you land in the inbox as well. And then not getting too crazy and sending too frequently. I say to brands that they should send at least um, every two weeks. And some brands obviously send a lot more frequently than that. Um, you should send at least every two weeks because otherwise customers might forget that they're subscribed to you. And then send as frequently as you can send quality content. Um, so some brands can get away with sending three, four, even five emails a week, but they're quality content. And the best way that I think about quality content is if a customer was to receive and open this email, are they more likely to receive future emails from me or less likely? You know, is this email just about what I'm trying to get out of them as a brand or is it providing some sort of value and enticement that they would think more highly of me and be more likely to open emails from me in the future? Mm, awesome. And what about the... Um the companies who do send a lot of emails what you said is about quality but mm. do they believe that they get the results anyway and they're prepared to take the hit because you know the volume that they send is going to land somewhere so they're prepared to take the hit of people being a bit annoyed with them what where's that balance you know that mm. people need to take yeah I think there's definitely the temptation in large companies that have the resources to send so many emails to just send as many as they've got the, the ability to do so. <clears throat> Sorry. And I think um, that they uh, that they find that, oh, if we send two emails a week, we get, you know, X dollars. And if we send five emails, we get more money. And if we send 10 emails, we get even more money. And so they kind of think... Um, that, that can just keep going on and the more we send, um, the more um, we'll get back. A little bit of that is um, is, is cannibalisation and by that I mean um, some of those customers were going to buy anyway and but they're just getting attributed to email because you sent them an email. Um, but also I think that if you do have that temptation as a large brand to send and, and resources to send lots of emails to customers, consider instead splitting up your list um, and, and sending them targeted content. So you might send 10 emails um, to, to your different customers, but split your customer groups into five different groups based on product interests that they've purchased before. So if you're a retailer selling, you know, electronics, for example, um, and you can see that some customers are particularly interested in gaming computers, then send the gaming computer focused 
email to just those gaming focused customers. Um, whereas people who, you know, maybe have bought products focused on home office, then send them the home office email. Um, so I think that's probably the best way to sort of sort of manage that. And then you're still from, from each customer's perspective, they're getting high value content um, that's relevant to them. Um, and you're, you should still get, um, yeah, quite good mileage with your email program. You mentioned a moment ago, Sean, that, uh, you know, you could be sending out emails and it just goes to the spam filter. Mm. How do you know as a brand that it's gone to the spam filter? Mm. Yeah, it's a good question. It's um, So we don't know explicitly. Um, like on the reports that you get from your platform, whether it's MailChimp or Klaviyo or Salesforce or whatever, it will tell you, some of them will tell you a number where it says that it's gone to the spam filter, but most of those numbers are significantly underreported. For example, if a customer reports it as spam or it goes into the spam filter um, on Gmail, then we just won't know about it. So we're kind of um, reading the tea leaves a little bit. One of the main things that we look at as, as unreliable as open rates are, like I said, you can sort of look at them from week to week and um, and fortunately, if it goes to the spam filter for one customer, it's probably gone for a chunk of customers. So if you've usually got an open rate of, say, 20% and you see it drop down to 10%, then chances are that a lot of customers, it went straight to their spam filter. And most of the platforms as well will allow you to see the open rates by um, uh, the domain of the customer. So, for example, um, if a customer has an at gmail.com email address, it will tell you the open rate for all of your at gmail.com emails, uh, customers and all of your at hotmail.com customers. And so then because they all have individual algorithms, you can see, okay, well, usually we get 20% open rate on Hotmail and 18% open rate on Gmail. But this time we got 20% on, on Hotmail, but only you know 6% on Gmail. You probably landed in the spam filter for just Gmail. And, and we see that quite regularly in that the different spam filters are regulating you know, variable amounts of uh, you know, aggressiveness. Um, and so you can kind of get a warning sign that you're starting to do something wrong and you can sort of rein it in, um, improve your sending practices, maybe tighten up your engagement rules on your list to um, to correct for that. And um, just in terms of the options you gave there about Gmail and Outlook mm. and Hotmail, if you have, if you're looking at your own list of those options, which one is kind of the hierarchy? You know, where do you mm. want, what kind of email addresses do you want more of in terms of is it you want oh, more right. Gmail or do you think Outlooks or Hotmails are kind of, you know, mm. redundant or, you know, <laughs> do, you, do you know what I mean? What's the... Yeah, it's a good, it's an, it's an interesting question. I've never really like sat down and done the analysis as to whether different customers, because I know, I know, for example, um, it's, it's quite well known within digital marketing that customers who are using iPhones um, are more likely, they're going to have an, a higher average spend. Um, you know, it could be a a conflating factor that sort of complicates things. But I know that that's definitely the case there. So it wouldn't surprise me if there was different um, amounts of, uh, you know, value from customers who are using different um, email addresses. Um, but I think that the most valuable thing in, a, in an email address is sort of how recently they engaged with you. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, so I think that's the main thing. However customers engage with you, I think, is, is usually pretty, um, pretty good. Let's talk about the email packages and software that mm. you use regularly and you see your customers use. Yeah. Um, and let's look at it from an e-commerce point of view to start sure. with, like the bigs, the JBs, the, mm. the jewellery companies, the, the general pants. What platforms do they use or software products do they use with email? Yeah, so the big ones um, in e-commerce are, um, and the main one that we work with is Klaviyo, um, but the other big ones in that space are Salesforce Marketing Cloud. Um, so a lot of a lot of brands are on that. Um, the other ones are Dot Digital and Emasis. Um, so they're kind of the big four in the enterprise level. Um, and yeah, and Clavio's sort of the that's the fastest growing when we look at Google Trends, for example, is, is one metric for um, you know search intent, which is you know general market interest. Um, Clavio is is sort of on the on the increase, um, especially in Australia. And what about say smaller brands? Um, mm. who don't have the need to have like millions of customers but have maybe, mm. I don't know, 100,000, 50,000? What is it still yeah. the same situation, the same software is applicable? Yeah, at the 100,000, 50,000, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be looking at Salesforce Marketing Cloud. Um, that's, you know, you kind of need to have dedicated, you know, training like staff that really know how to use that that software it's very powerful but it's very very complicated to use um Clavio is still applicable there um dr Judal and amasis are probably still applicable although probably being a little bit um 
you know, a little bit for, for the bigger ones there. Um, and then for the really small brands, like I think everyone knows MailChimp, that's applicable. Also the handy thing about that, it's applicable to most industries as well, um, unless you really need that um, direct like CRM, you know, one-on-one kind of relationship which you'll need like a CRM, which none of these ones really um, that we're talking about here really do that. I mean, on the very small size of like, you know, let's say thousands, like, you know, 1,000 to to 50,000, there's also um, another platform called Smarter Mail, which is really good as well. Um, You know, especially if you've just got like one or two people or or solo entrepreneur just starting up an e-commerce brand, um, really, you know, good on on self-guiding and handles a lot of this regulation stuff for you. What about Infusionsoft? That used to be a big player. Is that still out there and yeah, and yeah, popular? it's a good one. I haven't heard um, heard much from Infusionsoft in the last eighteen months or so. Um, they renamed their email marketing platform to Keep, um, but no, I haven't haven't um, kept up with Infusionsoft. So mm. they could they could be doing something good. I just um, yeah. I'm not as aware of it at the moment. Yeah, and so, I think that Infusionsoft was also a bit more on the um, CRM side of things. So. And by CRM, I usually mean like B2B, one-to-one relationship management. Um, so that's where like something like Salesforce or um, Active Campaign, where they've got, um, you know, the ability to sort of keep track of individual interactions as opposed to e-commerce to tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of customers like we are dealing with, where you've got like one brand communicating with a huge amount of people. Okay. I think that's a good distinction to make. Yeah, yeah. The, there's the CRM side of things and the, and would you say the non-CRM side of things? It's really just an email platform rather than a CRM sort of gathering sort of device? Yeah, exactly. And it's really about like identifying what your needs are. So like um, if you are, um, you know, B2B or you've got like, you know, individual drip, drip campaigns where you say, oh, I want, you know, I've just had a great phone call with this customer and I want them to hear all about this product and go through this journey, then you want to set up an individual drip campaign for them. And that sort of one-to-one, like if you're selling cars or something like that, um, then you really should be um, uh, like not listening too much to what I've got to say on any of the big communicating to millions of customers type of thing. But look at, you know, some of the platforms out there are like um, Active Campaign. Um, oh, what's another one? Um, Constant Contact, I think, is another one that does quite well as far as that. Yeah, more CRM, individual yeah. one-to-one type of type of thing. Yeah, I think that's probably an important distinction to make that you are dealing with millions, and it's not so much about tracking that individual relationship with what they're doing and keeping in touch and saying, "Well, they did this, and therefore we're going to do that with them." This is, it's a very different sort of objective, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, that's, I'm glad we covered that. So yeah. let's talk about um, the the concept of. I'm going to play some scenarios to you, mm. okay, because this I imagine people have got these scenarios and I'd love to hear from an expert as to how they should deal with it because mm. I know I've certainly had these from clients. So let me play the first scenario to you. Mm. Um, and these are not me, by the way, so let me just say these are just <laughs> things that I've heard over the years. You know, I have a client list from another business that I run mm. and I set up a new business that's entirely unrelated to that previous business. Mm. Can I send those people an email? for my mm. new business, which has been completely unconnected. But they do know that I'm the common factor between the two businesses. Mm. Yeah, I think the, the best way to handle that, I mean, legally, you need to look at the SPAM Act, and I'm pretty sure from the SPAM Act perspective, from the legal perspective, you wouldn't be covered there. Um, but the way that I think a customer would expect to handle this, and this is what I advise people, because I've, I've definitely had this question before, it's not uncommon for entrepreneurs to be have multiple businesses, um, is that you should make it clear that you are sending from you should send it from the brand that they signed up to and maybe cross promote the other one um, that they've got and if you but don't just dump that email address and assume that you've got permission from one brand to then email this other this that database about this other brand i would set up a separate landing page to encourage them to sign up to that list and then promote that as a related brand but make sure you've got the original brand so let's say brand a that sells surfboards and then you've got another brand that's selling um you know snow gear and they're like unrelated so you have your surfboard brand which you've got like a long relationship with and then you're promoting your snowboard brand Um, make sure that you've got all of your surfboard branding on that email that then says hey um here's this other brand that that we're associated with um and we you know if you want to hear from them make sure you click here and sign up and so that's a way to sort of kickstart it but it's also clearly from that original brand that they actually did sign up to and so that would be within the the legal 
okay to do that yeah. because you're sending it and you're being quite obvious about it. Yeah, you're obviously sending from the brand that they signed up to. Absolutely, yeah. And how many times could you do that before you start to really transgress? Like how many times could you send that email about the surf company yeah. promoting the, uh, the um, snow company? Yeah, I wouldn't do it more than a couple of times. Like you could probably get get away with it if there's a lot of excitement and interest from it. But I think it's 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 more about your customers, um, you know, expectations of that. You know, in that case, we've got a surf company and a snowboard company. They're probably a little bit of overlap as far as customer expectations, like on the customer expectation side of things. But if you've got a surfboard company and a mattress company, then you can probably only going to be able to do it once, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it's about how, yeah, what your customers will expect from that. Yeah. Okay, cool. What about this scenario? Um, I have an existing customer who's bought something from me. Mm. Uh, can I send them an email selling something else? Mm. So let's say um, using the same idea, I've sold them a surfboard mm. and then I think, oh, we've now introduced mattresses. <laughs> mm. can, I, can I send them something? Mm. Only if they've given marketing permission to send. So this comes back to what I was saying about um, that it's quite easy to accidentally send to people who haven't necessarily given marketing consent. But especially in an e-commerce context, it's really important and vital to have that clear, explicit consent that the customer has opted in to sign up. Now, fortunately, you know, you might ask for consent at multiple stages and they might only give it at um, at one stage. I'll give you an example. It's very common for an e-commerce brand to have a pop-up that says, hey, sign up to get 10% off. So clearly they're signing up, they're giving permission at that stage. They might then get that 10% off, go through the checkout and the checkout will also ask for permission um, and they don't necessarily give permission there. But because they have given permission, you have permission to email them, even if they haven't given it at every stage, as long as they've given it to you once, you can email them again. So on that point about cross-promoting another product, it's, yeah, absolutely, you can cross-promote other products. In fact, I encourage it um, and you can do that, you know, with, uh, you know, drip, campaigns like automated flows whatever you want to call them are following up with customers and saying hey you bought this product here's another product that would go well with it or you might be interested in um yeah absolutely but yeah it's really really on on the topic of spam and stuff like that it's it's vital that you've got that consent okay let's say you didn't ask for consent you sold Mm. someone a product Mm. and then you didn't ask for consent and then you tried to sell them a mattress Mm. If you if you don't have consent, you're only really um, permitted to send them transactional emails. So in a lot of these regulations that I was talking about, there's a distinction between transactional and what they call commercial or marketing messages. And so if somebody um, hasn't given, if they give consent, then they give consent kind of to everything. If they haven't given consent, obviously you're still allowed to send them transactional emails. So like shipping confirmation, order confirmation, their receipt, that type of thing. But that's kind of all you're really allowed to. Now, some brands sneak on marketing messages onto the receipt emails and stuff like that. Um, yeah, kind of make <laughs> find your own legal advice as to sort of how, how far you want to go with that sort of thing. Um, but I definitely recommend sort of keeping those two um, channels separate, the transactional and the, um, the marketing or commercial. So what would be uh, like a template that you would use to ask for consent? You've talked about explicit asking for consent. Mm. What's, what's the one liner? You know, is there one thing that they just everyone has to put on their email in order to have this person sign up to agree? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I generally prefer to uh, to ask for consent outside of email. So having it as a pop up on the website or having it as um, at the checkout, like making it really clear as part of that that existing user journey. Um, and again, like talking about e commerce, like if you're B two B, have a relationship with somebody. Um, and then you're emailing them individually and then then you're perfectly fine to to send an email. Like then you've kind of got that implied consent for, you know, um, some types of emails, but asking them to then join your mailing list. um, Yeah, like I think that, I think, yeah, I I mean, I guess it's a little bit outside of our usual expertise, but um, yeah, like I I usually on on the e-commerce side of things prefer to to ask for um, consent, you know, on the website. Um, as part of, um, you know, a landing page or a pop-up or the checkout process. And it would be, what What would the wording be? What just ran, and we're not going to hold you accountable for <laughs> everyone going off and using your language, but just so people understand exactly what kind of wording is used in a, in a general sense as to what this implied consent or explicit consent actually means. Yeah, I mean, 
you can just say sign up to get 10%. Like that's very, very effective um, because obviously you've got your marketing goals as well of trying to maximize the number of signups you can get. Um, and so if you say sign up to get 10% off um, and then you send an email with a 10% off discount code, um, you know, the wording is quite clear there, sign up to get 10%. You know, they have, they know that it's, oh, that's it's enough. tied to sign up. Yeah, that's, that's enough. enough. Yep. So you would have to say sign up and then receive an email from us every two weeks, whether you like it or not. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. And I, guess be that that comes to, uh, I mean, it's, it's also important to, um, you know, to respect unsubscribes and make it easy for customers to unsubscribe. And I think, you know, you touched on that before and I, I didn't go into it, but making it easy to unsubscribe is an important part of this. You want to make it easier for customers to unsubscribe than it is for them to report as spam because if customers reported as spam then you're in, in real trouble um, the algorithms definitely consider that to be a really important factor not just for that customer but for all of your customers your sender reputation in general um, and so yeah make it easy for them to unsubscribe if you've got a really large list make it you know maybe have multiple levels of um, subscription as well say hey you know, when they go to unsubscribe, say, hey, would you like to unsubscribe from all emails or just our sale emails or just our product launches? Um, make it granular in that sense. And so then you're giving customers sort of the best, you know, the, the level of, of engagement or the level of uh, communication from you that they want. Cool. I'll give you another scenario. Um, mm. I meet someone in person at an event and they mm. give me their business card so they can keep in touch. And I use that mm. sort of in inverted commas. Mm. Can I send them an email, like a sales email, uh, and if not, under what conditions can I send that email to that person when I've just sort of casually met them? Mm. I think um, I think legally you'd be, be perfectly entitled to, to send that to them there. I think that that would come under implied consent um, where, yeah, you, they they have given you, yeah, that, that email address, um, you know, it's not under any sort of sneaky circumstances that you or, or your, your, yeah, I think that they've given you that implied consent. Um, and I think you could even send them a couple of sales emails, text-based sales emails. Um, it sounds like it's sort of a more, you know, business-to-business -business kind of relationship there. Um, so, yeah, I definitely think that, that that's a good good use of, um, of that email address. Okay, so it's not express consent, it's implied consent. And on that yes. occasion, it's okay. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, um, you know, the, as I said, the Australian Spam Act kind of covers express and implied consent quite well, um, including some some scenarios like that. Um, and yeah, and so I think in that case, um, they've got the implied consent um, yet yeah, to, uh, to, yeah, to send them some emails. Okay, just a couple more. Yeah. Someone makes contacts through the contact form on the website mm. and requests information about a specific product. Uh, can mm. I send them an email about another product? We sort of covered that a bit, haven't we? Oh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think, yeah, I think in that case, you, you could send them an email, like just that one email, like, and then maybe cover off some, some other related products. So if they say, hey, have you got, you know, this dress, um, you know, I noticed on the website that it's out of stock, is it coming back in stock? And say, yeah, we've got this dress, but also, um, you know, we've got these, uh, these mattresses. Other, yeah, we've got <laughs> mattresses, or we've got jewelry or something that goes well with it. Yeah. Um, but I think that, um, you know, that kind of, I think mostly what I'm worried about with brands doing sort of sneaky stuff when it comes to consent, when it comes to, it's, it's all the big automated, big batch and blast type marketing and stuff. And so I feel like um, that customer service stuff, yeah, you're perfectly fine to to have a bit of back and forth with them and okay. yeah, make recommendations. Here's one more because I get this a lot. Um, yeah. Someone makes contact with me through LinkedIn mm. uh, and I see their email address is listed on their profile mm. page. Uh, can I take that email address and email them? Yeah, so I, I think in that case, you can email them personally, like as in, and maybe even again, put them through like a really simple drip funnel, but don't put them on your mailing list to be receiving every, you know, promotion and launch and everything like that from you. So yeah, I think that you've got, got permission to send them a few emails, um, especially related you know, but yeah, so that when, when someone's got a public email address, then it comes under that implied consent um, that it's not ex not expressed, it's not explicit consent, but it is implied um, that they have given consent to receive a certain level of emails from you. But again, I wouldn't put that onto, um, onto my mailing list to be receiving every newsletter from me. All right. So what would you, how would you manage that? Because I imagine that's how a lot of people actually do their email collection is, mm. do you mean like send a couple of emails like sort of personalised mm. and then ask them to be on your list? Is that what you're suggesting? Well, I mean, I wouldn't suggest this strategy for any e-commerce brands. No, um, like I'm talking about would, more B2B, yeah. Yeah. 
and so for the for the B2B side of things, I mean, um, yeah, it's just about respecting their respecting their expectations, respecting their sort of autonomy to choose um, uh, you know how many emails to receive from you and how frequently. There's a little bit outside of my my day to day, but as far as if somebody has like from a legal perspective, you're covered. They've got you've got implied consent. Um, from because a, it's publicly listed. Yes, exactly. Yeah, if someone's got a publicly listed email address, then they have given implied consent to receive um, so you know some increased frequency of emails from you. Um, but on the technical side, if you're sending a lot of emails to those people, um, you might not get that high engagement, especially if you've got a large list of these email addresses are just found from public sources um, that you can end up hurting the sender reputation of your um, of your your own uh, brand. So. Wouldn't wouldn't be uh, doing this unless you think that it's, there's a high chance that they're going to positively receive that email, that they're not going to report it as spam. Cool. And finishing up, and it really is just segueing from what you just said, mm. sender reputation. Mm. What are some of the factors that influence sender reputation and how can we protect it? Mm. So sender reputation is kind of this um, made-up term that we use to try to understand i mean if you take sort of an, an seo analogy we kind of think of like seo juice or seo reputation for that website as a whole as to how how reputable they are as a website as to how google sees them for example and so on the email side of things we've kind of got this sender reputation so you could kind of think of it as um if your sender reputation is over 100 then your email will go into the spam fault into the inbox sorry um, as opposed to the spam folder. And if it's less than 100, then it will go into the spam folder. And so that reputation is like a score that we don't really know exactly what it is. But, but if our emails are regularly going into the in inbox that we know our sender reputation is over 100. And we can continue to boost that if we follow best practices, which comes back to the spam stuff that we were talking about earlier, about content flags, about engagement. So if you're regularly sending content that customers are engaging with to customers who are engaging with it, and you're not sending super spammy content you're not doing all caps subject lines with exclamation points and ellipses, um, and you're um, you know trying not to have typos and have some text in there and address the customer by name. Then over time, you'll continue to improve your sender reputation and land um, in in your customers' inbox, you know, with increasing frequency. You are an absolute goldmine of information about email <laughs> and uh i know if i was one of those big brands i would have i feel very confident having you on my side and, gu and guiding me because i know you love the technical side a lot you know <laughs> and you really take a great deal of pride in making your clients um you know compliant so i want to thank you very much for sharing with me your wonderful knowledge and uh, all the very best thanks so much bernadette great to chat with you who said email was dead Email is very much alive and well. And as Sean says, it's an integral part of any marketing campaign, no matter how big you are or what you sell. So if you'd like to learn more about how to write email campaigns, check out our copywriting course at writercenter.com.au slash essentials. And if you're already a copywriter and want to connect with a lively community of copywriters, access a raft of training resources, amazing templates, and access our Ask Me Anything sessions, check out copyclub.com.au to find out more. I'll leave you with this quote from the pioneering feminist Gloria Steinem. Writing is the only thing that when I do it, I don't feel like I should be doing something else. Isn't that interesting? And I'll leave you with my joke as per usual. Why do writers always feel cold? Because they're surrounded by drafts. Don't we know it? That's it from me. Thank you for listening. I'm Bernadette Schwert. All the best. Take care and bye-bye.